0: man, we've been in a cool series. This series has been super powerful. I think we've said this a couple times, but I love God working in just the most random ways. Um, Cheryl Bell, who who welcomed us at the top, literally the series came because she was studying a book that, that was going through each of these stories that we're going through, and she randomly mentioned it in a staff meeting, and Miles was like, that's for sure going to be a series. One small detail leading to us going through all these powerful stories, and as we've been studying it, some of these things are going to come out in this message, but As we've been studying it, it's not just like a flipping, oh, these are really cool stories that we've strung together around these three words. No, there's like actual like grammatical ties between each of these stories that don't really exist anywhere else that have tied it together. The Bible's so cool, y'all. So it's been such a powerful series. Like I said, my name is Tyler. Some of you might better know me as Maverick's dad or Ann's husband or David and Carolyn's son-in-law, whichever way you want to take that. Um, But I'm super thankful, super excited, Um, wanted to start this out just by sharing a little bit of where me and my wife and my family are at. We are actually going to have a second baby in November, so very excited about that, a little overwhelmed. Um, Another huge advantage, right, of being the youth pastor is I get to talk to a bunch of amazing parents, and I'm like, how is your student so mature at this age. Like, I get to learn from them. So, I would love all the parenting tips I hear going from one to two is super overwhelming and just the craziest transition. So, praying into that would love church family praying with us in that. But we're super excited. I don't know, you know, there's generalizations all the time, right? But I've started to see, like, maybe there's something to the fact that, like, little boys are crazy. Anybody, like, again, I don't have a girl, uh, but maybe... Parents with girls and boys can tell me the difference, but it's just like they know how to do crazy things. It's like, why would you even think of that, right? Like, I think most toddlers start to climb things. They do that whole stuff. So Maverick's been climbing stuff like crazy since he could walk. But now he's pretty much capable of getting anywhere on any level of height or verticality in our entire house. And I mean, this was three months ago. The man is climbing up like a, a high, like right couch seat right here, a high side table, like one of the chest of drawers or something like that. He's just climbing up there and I look over and he's just diving off onto the couch. And I'm like, who? who, where did you see that? Like, why are you doing that? So praying and believing that he's going to be excited and gentle We're using that word a lot, gentle with the new baby. Um, He's got some younger cousins that he's been able to practice both being gentle and not being gentle with. So um, shout out to them and their parents for having patience with us. But like I said, this series has been super cool. We've been able to profile a different character at a different point in history. And if you weren't here last week, you need to go back and listen. Moses in the burning bush, Gage Henry brought a word about calling. Um, High school seniors, yeah, you can please. Thank you, get excited for it. Brady, thanks. High school seniors, I'll say to you right now, within the next year, you're going to have a moment or moments like, oh my gosh, what is my calling? What am I supposed to do with my life? Even if you think you've known since you were little, I promise you that moment's coming. When it happens, go back and find that message. Listen to it. It'll settle your soul. But if you haven't heard the other messages going through Abraham and Jacob and, like I said, Moses last week, you need to go back and listen to it. Because as we've been going through, we've been looking at this phrase, here I am or here am I, whichever way it's translated. The Hebrew word is hineni. Basically, God, here I am. And it's one person, one human responding to the call of God in a bunch of different scenarios. And we got a a couple more stories even after this week. But responding to God, God doing something powerfully through their response, through their availability, that ends up shaping the course of redemptive history. That's the coolest part to me is We didn't think about this as we were starting the series, but once we started, we had a little meeting where we were like looking at each of these and like, okay, what are some of the things that we're noticing about each of these stories? We started to realize all of these stories are at like key moments in redemptive history, which is, if you didn't know, like history of the world, like the story. When we talk about being part of the story, we're part of God's story of redemptive history, where we fell, we mess it up, and he's been redeeming us, finding ways for us to get back to him throughout all of history. So we see... Abraham, having been promised that the world would be blessed through him, which we know is the promise of the coming Messiah, Jesus. And that line would come through a promised son, Isaac, and he was called to give him up. And he obeyed with here am I, and God rescued him. And we see this powerful moment of God affirming, affirming again that covenant, that promise to Abraham that the Messiah would come through him. He didn't know it at the time, but we read that and we see the life of Jesus promised through that promise. And then we see Jacob being so hesitant to go to Egypt, and a place that we know leads to slavery for his family for 400 years. And on the front end, we're like, why, why would you do that? But if you miss that message, that's a story of God calling us to go because he sometimes calls us into the valley of the shadow of death to work something in us that we didn't expect. And if we really think about that, what we see through the, the story of the Israelites is slavery almost became explicitly ingrained in, in the national like psyche of Israel, And they fought so hard against it, but then they fell into slavery time and time again. And really, that's just a reflection of the the state of humanity. That's just an explicit reflection of the fact that we have all, because of the fall, been enslaved to sin. And God redeems us out of that. So then we see Moses responding in, in a crazy story of the bush burning and it did not burn up. And leading God's people out of Israel, out of slavery. God redeeming them, like I said, walking them through the Red Sea Into the land. And so this is where we're going to pick up here. It's important to know context. We're going through a story of a guy named Samuel. If you grew up in church, you've definitely heard of him before. Anointed Saul, anointed David. But we're going to go through a story a little bit earlier in his life, kind of as as the transition of leadership was going to Samuel. So another key moment in redemptive history. But what's important, we always talk about when we read the Bible, we need to know the context right? So most of us in this room, if you've been coming to this church or honestly just grown up in the South, we know that you shouldn't just pull a verse out of context and read it. You need to read the context around it. But just as important, when we're reading stories like this, especially with narrative, you need to know what happened before and after. You need to know the big context, the history of what's going on. And so let's pick up right there, right? Moses has led Israel out of Egypt through the plagues, through the Red Sea, Now they're in the wilderness. They're going towards the promised land, another promise that was part of the promise to Abraham. They fail. They miss it. They mess it up. And so none of the generation that that saw God do those crazy things in Egypt ended up getting to go into the promised land. It It was a whole new generation because of the failures of the first one. So they then enter the land, and we see in the book of Joshua that there is a whole, through the life of Joshua and through his leadership, a whole conquest of the promised land. So they're told, hey, go take this city, you tribe, go take this city, you push that people out of there. There's people living in the land, nations living in the land that they're supposed to push out. They do a a decent job, an 80% well done job. But um, I think we all know that when you don't fully obey, when you don't fully finish the job, it's kind of like you didn't really do the job. It's the same with truth. If you tell 80% of the truth, you're not really telling the truth. So they only get part of the way there, they don't really, there's certain uh, tribes that were supposed to push out a people called the Philistines, which if you know biblical history became a huge problem for the Israelites as they kept going. There's other nations that kind of kept a foothold here, or a stronghold there in parts of the territory that God said, this is supposed to be yours. And so they, they kind of 80%, 90% do the conquest well. And then Joshua dies, and now we enter this period called the Judges. There's a book called Judges. Some people talk about the book as a a sin cycle or redemption cycle, whichever way you want to look at it. We can look at it positively because of Jesus wins, right, that God keeps redeeming again and again. But we do see the story of, of us in that, right? Like we fail. God sends somebody to save us. It's good for a little while. We fail again. That's the story of the book of Judges. God sends a judge because Israel completely ignored his commands, ignored the way that he called them to worship. They started worshiping another god or failing. A foreign power came and took over and subdued the Israelites for a little while. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge who clears it, frees Israel again, basically, and now Israel can worship God, and then they fall right back into the same pattern. So that period, the period of the judges, is where we pick up this story of Samuel. We're in a period that Israel doesn't really have an explicit judge. Eli is, a, is what we would know as the high priest, at a place called Shiloh. We don't have the temple right now. We have the tabernacle still that God told Moses to build that went through the wilderness with them. And they set the tabernacle up at a place called Shiloh. Eli and his family are leading. They're the ones organizing the sacrifices, doing all the stuff. So he is kind of the de facto leader of Israel at the time. Him and his family are leading Israel. And that's the story where we pick it up. If you have your Bibles, would you hold them up for me? Hold them up. Now out of curiosity, because I think this shifts as you get older, but I could be wrong. Keep your Bibles up in the air if summer is explicitly your favorite season of the year. Keep your Bibles up if summer is your favorite season. Okay, now put your Bibles back up if when you were in school, it was your favorite season of the year. There we go. Okay, now put them down. It's just, I've started to realize that. I've started to notice that. There was a very intense debate on the youth team a couple months ago about what was the best season and all this stuff. And we had rankings. It was a whole thing. And I started to realize, I'm like, summer really used to be my favorite Now, I don't get a three-month break off of school and responsibilities, and I'm kind of feeling like fall is starting to become my favorite. So, football, holidays, I mean, it's just, there's a lot of good stuff there, but I do, I do love, I do love summer still, but we're in 1 Samuel chapter 3, it's after the first five books, it's after Judges, if you're in the Psalms, you've gone too far, weirdly, it's right in front of uh, 2 Samuel, it's right before that. So we're we're going to pick up in chapter 3 and we're going to read straight through and then we're going to dive into it. If you're there say I'm there. Yeah. If you lied and you're still flipping pages and you're there now say I'm there. <laughs> it's all right. It's all good. I'm normally I just respond I'm there and I'm still flipping most of the time. So All right, first Samuel chapter 3 verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The, other, the Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. Fun word. Fun word. At the time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely. If you hide from me everything he told you, anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word and Samuel's word came to all Israel. So being quite honest, my first response after reading that is thinking of a situation that all of us have been in spouses. 100% have been in this multiple times, both ways, man and wife, where you're trying to get the other person's attention and they're about three three feet from you, and they're just not hearing their name whatsoever? Do we know what I'm talking about? It's like, Anne, 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 Anne Marie. And it's fine. Are you talking to me? Again and again, God calls Samuel. Samuel keeps going back. And, and I want to point out, Samuel's willing to obey. Like, he, he immediately gets up. He runs to Eli. Like, that's obedience right there. Again, I'm working with teenagers. I was a teenager not so long ago, though if you listen to one of the teenagers, it was years and years and years and years and years ago that I was a teenager. But it was not so long ago that I was a teenager. And it made me think of the moment, parents of teens, you know this. If you're a teenager, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where you're sitting there and your mom or dad is like, hey, go get your brother or sister, we're about to eat. And you're like, Lena. And they're like, I could have done that. Like that's what I'm thinking about as I'm reading this story, that Samuel's willing to get up immediately three times and respond to it. But some interesting notes from this passage. It's definitely an audible voice of the Lord, like out loud. Samuel physically responds. It's not a dream. God speaks through dreams. We see, we've seen that in some of the other stories, but this is an audible voice. Samuel gets up and responds. Super interesting that when Samuel's finally ready to listen and realizes that, that it's the Lord, it says, the Lord came and stood there. God was physically there and talking to Samuel. Most of the time that we see in scripture that God is standing in one way, shape, or form, it's a really significant moment in redemptive history, just like we've been talking about. So that shouldn't shock us that that detail's in there. There's multiple calls of a personal name the exact same, like Abraham, Jacob, and Moses. That's one of the grammatical things I was talking about, um, reading in a commentary, and they're like, it's so interesting that God calls a multiple his name multiple times in the way that he does, because that happens like three other times in the scripture before this, and shockingly, it's in the stories of Abraham, Jacob, and Moses that we've gone through. On the front end, this story could be a hey, the older generation missed it, let's build up the youth message. I've heard that message out of this passage. Samuel was probably 12, 13 years old. But what's cool to me is sitting here as we've gone through this series, we've read stories of some older people in this book. You know, Abraham was, was fairly old at the time. I think Moses had gone through a lot of his life. Jacob was towards the end of his life explicitly. And now we have a story of a very young person responding in faith. And so two, two observations I do wanna make on that. If you're a younger person in the room and and honestly, younger person in our culture today has really expanded to, to yo pros, we'll say yo pros and below, remember that biblical principle, let no one look down on you because you're young. You can respond and the Lord can use you powerfully by one step of obedience, just like he can use your parents, somebody who's led you. But on the same side, look at most of the stories we've gone through. The older generations are not outside of God using them, no matter where you're at in your story. And... We need the older generations. I'm gonna still squeeze myself into the younger generation, even though, again, I'm called old most of the time in my job, but I'm gonna count myself in the younger side. We need the older generations to guide us. Samuel did not yet know the voice of the Lord. He would not have known to say, speak, Lord, your servant's listening without Eli telling him to do that. So we need both sides of that. So that's a good message from this, but I think there's a little bit more to it. There's a lot of symbolism in here, and this is where I wanna make a point. I've made before, we've made a lot from this stage. We have to know how to read our Bibles. Our Bible is probably some of, if not the best literature ever written, ever. Like it's not, it is not, we're not missing meaning by reading it as great literature, reading it as great literature and the things that come of great literature. Great stories are told, because God's the, great, the greatest storyteller. And there's things reflective of that in other great stories that we love to read that we talk about in our English classes. But we have to read this as literature, so we have to notice when there's symbolism happening. That doesn't mean that these things didn't happen. That doesn't take away from the veracity, the truth of these stories. It actually adds to the depth because the writer, the human writer, and then the Holy Spirit through that human writer are intentionally using these details to show us things. So some of the symbolism in this passage. Eli's eyes were weak, symbolizing his spiritually weak insight. He's been serving at the house of God all of his life, and it still took him three times to realize it was God talking to Samuel. The lamp burning in the night symbolizing Samuel's presence as a piece of hope in this spiritually dark time. The time of the judges was like upheaval all the time. When a judge came and redeemed, most of the time, that wasn't over the whole nation, that was over one tribe. The period of the judges was so bad that tribes were fighting each other. One tribe almost went extinct because they did terrible things. All the other tribes came and attacked them and almost wiped them out. So this is like a crazy, chaotic time, and in the midst of this, we see Samuel coming in as this, as this piece of hope, light shining in the darkness. Does it sound like anybody else? Samuel laying where the ark was, symbolizing his position as being the closest to God. So some of the things that had to happen, the lamp of the Lord had to continue burning, so that was clearly part of Samuel's responsibilities because he was staying near it, and he was the closest to the, ark of, the God, ark of God at the time, like symbolizing his closeness to God, even though he did not yet know the voice of the Lord. We see after the prophecy, Samuel opens the doors to the house of the Lord, showing us the start of a new spiritual era in Israel. This, this story transitions us from the period of the judges, Samuel being the last judge, and he's going to anoint kings. So let's profile both of them a little bit because there's more to this story than just, just this chapter. The start of 1 Samuel is showing us, again, that transition from judges to kings, slowly but surely, through the life of Samuel. But we have to see the backstory to see the climax that's happening in this, like where this prophecy came from. So let's profile Samuel and Eli a little bit. Samuel comes from a random family, like a very random family. It's in chapter 1. They tell you where they come from. We know his dad was faithful to the law and led his family well. We see that in, in the first chapter. Some people are like, hey, Samuel shouldn't have been in the house of God because he wasn't a Levite. Because it says he was from Ephraim, one of the other tribes. How we think we can reconcile that, how it makes sense. Because in 1 Chronicles, uh, it actually says Samuel's part of the Levitical tribe. The only people who could be priests at the time. Um, Levites didn't have specific territory. They lived in everybody else's territory. So it's likely that his family was a random family who lived in the territory of the tribe of Ephraim but they were a Levitical family. So still a random family, but his dad and his mom are faithful to the law of God. Elkanah, that's his dad's name, took a second wife, not Samuel's mom, likely because it says twice in the first chapter that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. It says the Lord had closed Samuel's mom's womb. That's a whole nother sermon that I'm not gonna touch right now. But I will take this moment to say, if you or somebody you know or your family have struggled, are struggling with infertility, lost pregnancies, just know we have way too many stories of key figures in the Bible to not believe that God is using you very specifically in that season. It kind of messed me up when I realized that the Lord had done it, and then he blessed Hannah later with a son, that she then gave Samuel up. Like she didn't even raise Samuel. He was raised by Eli in the house of God. She gave him up when he was one, or th- one to three years old, somewhere in there. But then the Lord blesses her with other kids. So there's something special that God is doing. And I know it doesn't feel that way if you're in that season. It honestly probably feels from what I've heard that God is so, so far away. But just know from this moment that God sees you and he's doing something that you cannot see right now through your story. We love you. This is a place where you can process that, that's why we have community groups. That's why we have people who are available for you. We love you and we want to be your church in that season and out of it. So I wanted to make that point because that's a key part of Samuel's story. Samuel sounds like the Hebrew for heard by God. He was a Nazarite, which is a specific vow that people can make to God for a period of time we see put, put forward in numbers. But Like I said, Hannah dedicates him as a Nazirite for his whole life. Um, Samson was also a Nazirite. They weren't supposed to cut their hair. We think John the Baptist was probably a Nazirite for a period of time. As Eli's sons increased in wickedness, that's what we see these first two chapters, that Eli's sons keep messing up. Samuel, and we're going to put this verse on there from chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. This is one of the crazy stories where if you flip to Luke 2, verse 52, I think it is. Yep, verse 52. I'm willing to bet most of our Bibles don't have a footnote there. But Luke, the writer of the gospel, knew exactly what he was doing when he said, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus fulfilled everything from the Old Testament. There's so many more references to the Old Testament and our New Testament than we realize. And I'm not saying we have to go find them and piece together a puzzle. But what we should see is God's sovereignty through that and the fact that Jesus knows our stories better than we know them. He, that, all of the Hebrew kids at the time, right, were supposed to have all of these books memorized, so they, they did. They all knew this story. Jesus fulfilled all of these stories. And so we see every story that we've looked through in the series, and as we continue through the series, we will see pieces of the life of, life of Jesus reflected in these stories. And what that should tell us is that these stories are valuable not just because they're history, not just because we have to know them to understand what Jesus did, but because these are our family history because Jesus treated it as that, and he grafted us into this family. So this is our family history. This matters for us to know. And through the way characters respond, we can see pieces of Jesus reflected there, and then we're called to look like Christ as we follow him. So that's an important point to make. Samuel's super unique historically because he's a judge, he's a priest, and he is what is considered the first of the prophets. We know that from verse 20 where it says, all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, probably the first time since Moses that the entire country, those geographical locations are just opposite sides. So probably the first time that the entire country recognized one leader. In Judges, it was, like I said, different pieces kind of moving at the same time. But it says, all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as the prophet of the Lord. And before that, it said, the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. The only other person that that word attested is used for in the Hebrew before this is Moses. Only national prophets up until this point. And so Samuel has this unique role. He anoints David, which we know then through that, another promise comes with the Messiah. And so now we move to Eli. We see Eli blessing Hannah to get pregnant. He basically raised Samuel. Again, we have to lead the generation behind us. That is what discipleship is in the church. Even if you don't feel qualified, it has to happen. His own sons were, the word the scripture uses is scoundrels. They sinned greatly against God. They basically were in charge of all the sacrifices. And instead of giving God the part that he explicitly says, give this part to God, and then they're priests, so they get part of it, they take the best parts for themselves first and then say God can have whatever's left. And that's not just important because it's food that seems small to us, but ceremonially, that is like blasphemy against God. It's like, you know what, God, I understand that we're supposed to be honoring you and serving you, but I'm gonna get what I want and then you can have whatever's left. So that was a huge, huge issue at the time. We have one account of Eli rebuking his sons, but they didn't listen. Then we see before this chapter, somebody else came to Eli and made basically the same prophecy against him because he could not restrain his sons. And then later on in this book, we see this come true. Him and his sons die, Samuel kind of takes over. His family, I think one of his grandsons, was still operating as the high priest up and through David's reign. And then when Solomon takes over, that person is actually killed and somebody else becomes the high priestly family. So these prophecies come true historically. And so if we look at this prophecy, like I said, that's an interesting word, tingle, right? Make the ears of everybody who hears about it tingle. That's not a good thing. That sounds kind of lighthearted, but that's like everybody who hears about this is gonna be scared because of what happens. Everything that God spoke against Eli will happen. We see that through the books. I would judge his family forever. This is in verse 13. Because of the sin he knew about, his sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. So God is now holding Eli accountable for not leading his family. It's his sons who did the big bad sin. Samuel failed because he could not lead his family. So I read that, and I start thinking, I'm like let us not let our jobs or our other callings make us sacrifice leading our families in whatever way way or shape that takes for you. There's a leadership role that we have to the people in our lives. Again, even if you're not the dad or the mom or in charge of the family, you can lead people by loving them. You don't have to be in charge to lead them. And so let us not sacrifice our families for our jobs. And I thought this was interesting as, as reading through this and listening to Gage last week you know, I lead our youth ministry. I work with a lot of college students. So Gage making the point, and we make this point a lot here, that the, the generations coming up are probably the most anxious generation in history. Not probably, they are. Um, and older people struggle with anxiety too. That's not just a younger people thing. But in, in record numbers, younger generations are doing that. And as I was listening to Gage, I was, I was thinking about this and thinking about the, this picture of, of the way that Eli was leading and just the way that Samuel was going because we have this dynamic. That's the picture that's painted in these first few chapters of 1 Samuel. Engage me the point that that the younger generations are the most anxious generations. And I had this thought that I think it's true of all of us in Auburn, if we're really real with ourselves, but across the board, probably true for anywhere. Younger generations have started to cope with anxiety. I kind of feel like the older generations have coped with comfort instead of anxiety. And so that can mean different things. But what we see there, do you know how, I mean, I know y'all in this room know this. Do you know how uncomfortable it is to confront your family? Right, Like Eli at this point, it is, it is kind of implicitly understood that he probably should have done a better job of leading them as they were growing up so they would have listened to him later. But it's still explicitly said that even once they were adults and growing and leading, they were still under his leadership because they were serving under him at his Eli being the high priest, and he still should have restrained them. And so that should say something to us that Eli got used to the rhythm of being in the house of God. Eli got used to being there to the point where the word of the Lord was rare, It took him three times to realize it was God speaking. Just being planted in the house of God does not mean that we're hearing from God. Just serving on a team and being in a community group and doing these things, though we should be doing them, does not mean that we are following and surrendering our lives to God. It's really easy where we live if we're really honest with ourselves to be really comfortable. This church is awesome. I think we do really cool things. I think it's a lot of fun to be a part of but it is easy for us to not push ourselves out of that rhythm and pattern of comfort because let's be honest, that's the way the world around us looks. Auburn's a great great place to live and everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, really believes that because it's a really easy place to get comfortable and we all want that. And so this is just kind of a, a, a working definition just for the sake of this sermon, but how I'm thinking about comfort, talking about comfort right now is a good desire fulfilled wrongly. Eli probably really wanted peace in his family, but he settled for harmony, which is honestly the lie that most of us settle for in our families. I just, let's not say anything about it. Let's not be clear about how we feel. Like that's what the world wants, if I'm being completely honest with you right now. They don't want any definitive statements of this is what I believe and this is what is true. And we can do that in love, but we're sometimes scared to do it for the sake of peace. So a good thing, we want peace fulfilled wrongly, through this, again, harmony is not a bad word. I'm just using that as a, as a lesser piece, as a false piece. And so we see in this story, the story that's painted at the beginning of this book, the story that, is, that comes to a head in this chapter is Samuel and his family's obedience versus Eli and his family's comfort. Like that's, that's the narrative that's painted here. And so we're gonna make this point. I, like I struggle with comfort. How, much, how, how often would I, would you, rather just get home from working really hard put Maverick to bed and watch Netflix instead of connecting with my wife. Like that's, that's me coming in wanting rest, but really just using a, here's a counsel word that I learned from my wife and some of the other counselors at our college retreat, really just coming in and disassociating. Yeah. That's a word right there. We just want to shut off. We just want to relax. We're pursuing rest, a good thing. We're settling for relaxation because wow. that's the way our world works. And so I'm not saying, that's just a story from my life. I'm not saying you watching Netflix is is you sinning. That is not at all what I'm saying. But you know what that thing is for you. Like, you know where those things sneak in because this is the problem. We're not, again, God's not confronting Eli's sons about the big sin. Like, he's not confronting them about that. They've already messed up. They're completely unrepentant. But now he's coming at Eli and showing us there's, there's there's a sneakier problem and that's the way that we are attacked in the world and the place that we live in right now. That is the way that our church is attacked. It's through these sneaky things. We know we've seen the stories. We know the big sins to look out for, but in what ways is comfort sneaking into our lives? And so here's the title of the message that I I blew past at the beginning, but we're gonna title this message, The Cost of Comfort, and we're gonna put this line straight up on the screen. The cost of comfort is your callings. Yes, callings, plural. If you don't get that, listen to Gage's message last week. You have one calling if you're a Christian, which is to serve God, and then there's all of these other callings, whether a dad or a mom, brother, sister, your job, whatever it is, there's a lot of different callings, the things God's gifted you with, the things he's made you passionate about. The cost of our comfort is our calling because we're, we're more committed to comfort, truthfully, than we are to our callings. It's really easy to be comfortable here. And the problem is, is that our callings are by nature uncomfortable because they're meant to grow us and impact the world around us it's really, really hard to make an impact when you're really comfortable. Now, comfort is different than being confident. Those are two separate things. You can be confident in what God's calling you to do. You can be in a rhythm of, man, I feel like I'm really talking to the Lord and hearing from him and leading my family and doing well at my job. That's different than comfort. Comfort is when, whoo, it feels too much and we take that step back and we start sacrificing the impact of our callings. And so comfort also looks like conformity to the world a lot of times. Comfort eats away at our impact with our callings. Again, whatever those are, your job, being a parent, being a friend, your passions, because we start to settle for the world's values and their methods. It's really easy to do that. I almost added that in there that we need to pursue God's obedience, obedience to God instead of uh, comfort in the world. But I just wanted to leave that, the cost of comfort is our callings more open because whatever that is for you, there are ways that we are sacrificing our obedience to God that we are called to do clearly through the example of Samuel in this story for comfort, methods, values of this world. I'm gonna give one example. This is not me making a stand on this one thing. This is one example to point to what I'm talking about because then I can have accountability because I know I'm gonna struggle with this in about five years. I love sports, huge fan of sports, love watching sports. I played sports. I really want my kids to play sports. I can guarantee you I'm going to struggle with this as soon as Maverick starts playing sports. Just some stats for you on sports as you lead your family and think about kids' involvement and as I start to think about it. 7% of high school athletes will play a college sport. 1.8% of them will play D1. 0.02% of them will be professional athletes. 100% of them will stand before God. Like And that sounds dramatic, and I know that sounds intense, but that is just to show an example of the ways that sometimes we can fall into the patterns of this world. And I'm saying that having done that myself. Do you know how many Sundays I pushed and pushed and fought and fought to not go to church because I wanted to rest because I had a game or a practice the day before or on Sunday? Again, and that is just an example, and that is Up to you and the Holy Spirit to figure out, okay, now where is this healthy, like we're actually doing good things, like being in sports and being involved is a really positive thing. But in what ways in my family am I sacrificing what God's called me to do, obedience of what he's called me to do, of what my family's been called to do, to just look like the world? Again, that's one example because it's prevalent here and I think about it a lot because I like it. But I don't know what that thing is for you, but we have to push back against looking like the world around us. Another one is, is and this is an easy one to call out, but like there's only going to be 1% of us in the top 1% of wealth in this country. 1% across the country. Probably not going to be many of us, but we're all going to stand before God. Like that's another example of what are we pursuing? What are the things that are important to us? Where are we sacrificing obedience to God? Where are we sacrificing obedience to the things he's called us to? Where are we sacrificing figuring out how to obey him? Because a lot of times we don't know how to obey him. I will take all of the parenting advice I can get because currently I know, I know some principles. I know the biblical principles pretty well. Tactically, I don't know how to obey God super well at parenting my son because I'm really new at it. So where am I sacrificing learning how to do that well for comfort. Because that's not setting me well up to lead him later when he's a teenager and starts pushing back and isn't just cute and adorable and I can't just pick him up. Makes me cry every time I think about him being too big for me to pick him up. Parents know what I'm talking about. And so this is where we have to pursue obedience over comfort. Obedience is uncomfortable. Samuel said in this, he said, Speak, Lord, for your servants listening. We've said this from stage before, but the word he uses there is the Hebrew word shema. They don't really have a word for obey. Shema means, I am listening with the intent to obey. I'm listening to hear. It's not a, it's not a, is this going to go well for me? It's not a, okay, God, I hear what you're saying, but you know, if I do that, then this is going to happen. It's not a, should, should I do this? Because if I really do this, they might get offended. Or if I really do this, then, well, I didn't rest. No, again, you were just relaxing. It's not a debate on what's going to happen if I obey. It's God, if you speak, I'm here to obey. And so I read this quote from um, a pastor. He leads a a, a church in Waco that we have followed for a little while. His name is Jonathan Puckluda, But he said on Instagram this week, love how God's works, even through Instagram, you cannot judge obedience by the perceived outcome. If I do this, this will happen. If you eat that fruit, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. They didn't need to judge it based on what they thought was going to happen because then they were lied to about what was going to happen. The truth is, most of the time, what you think is gonna happen in your obedience to God is a complete lie from your flesh. You think, if I do this, this is what's gonna happen. If I do this, I'm gonna miss out on that. If I do this thing, if I take that step of faith that God's called me to do, I'm gonna mess this part up or I'm gonna miss this. You don't know what is going to happen on the other side of your obedience. Samuel probably did not know that he was going to become the national leader of Israel, that he was going to anoint anoint the anointed one, David. He didn't know those things were gonna happen. He was scared to tell Eli the prophecy until Eli confronted him with it and he obeyed. But he was available and willing to obey because he had been formed to obey from his parents, from being in the house of God. And so another quote that I read is that growth can only occur in a state of discomfort. That was from a a TED Talk, just a, a secular point of view, talking about being uncomfortable. And he told this whole story of how he got fired and how much he grew after that season. But it really is true, like biblically, because of the fall now, we can't really grow when we're comfortable. I heard another pastor, Rick Warren, say, I don't think I've ever learned anything from pleasure. Like most of the time, if we're really, really enjoying things, now there is a place for that, and we have to learn how to rest well. Hear me not ignoring that that is true as well. But most of the time when there's, we're doing those things, that's a, that's a breath, not a pattern of our life. We're not supposed to look like the world. We're not supposed to have all the things that the world has. If we have some of the really nice things or are involved in the really nice things that the world does, we're actually supposed to lay those down at the feet of Jesus because he can use those things. He's not saying immediately give up everything and we should all go live in the middle of nowhere. He's not saying that. He's saying he's gonna use the things in our life, but we have to be willing to surrender them. And the pattern of comfort in us is rare that we are willing to do that. So we should aim to grow in two things. This is how we're gonna prioritize obedience over comfort. First one, we need to learn or we need to grow in perceiving God's voice. We have to be able to hear him. God knows your personality. He made you. He is willing to speak to you in the way that you will listen. And if you don't want to listen, sometimes he will use hard things or tragic things to get your attention. If you are in Christ today, he loves you too much to let you just stay in a pattern of comfort. Like he loves you too much to let that happen. He wasn't gonna let Israel just keep following this powerful family because they had gotten comfortable. He was gonna shake it up by going to an obedient servant. And we see in the life of Peter, even when you mess it up and he calls you out for it and he confronts you on it, he still wants to use you in it because he's full of grace and truth. He's gonna give you the truth, but the grace is not lacking when he gives you the truth or confronts you with hard things. So we have to learn how to listen. He's going to talk to you differently. It says in the New Testament, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. This is where we have to learn to read scripture. We collectively would we'll say the universal big, big C church needs to get better at this. I think we do an amazing job of teaching little kids Bible stories. And then sometimes we don't learn how to keep studying it as we grow. But we have to learn to read the Bible. We have to go to resources. We have to study it. There's historical interpretations that matter. And then God through that speaks to us through scripture. Like he is willing to speak to you in your everyday circumstances, in the voices of those around you. The more that you know his word, the more that you're planted in a community like this one, whether you call this church home or not, the more that you do that, you will grow in practice of, oh, wait, I think that was him. There's a little prompting here or something pops into your head and you're like, where did that come from? And you start to realize if you had just done that thing, all of this fruit would have come from it we have to start realizing that God does speak to us. He speaks to us through the still small voice of the Holy Spirit inside of each and every one of us, but we have to know his voice to hear it. So we have to grow in perceiving God's voice. Professionals in in money and art know counterfeits because they know what the real thing looks like. The more that you grow in listening to God, the more that you will know, oh, that was my flesh, that was God. It's a practice and we don't do it perfectly and he meets us with grace in it, but we have to pursue perceiving and understanding God's voice. Samuel responded and obeyed even though he did not know the Lord's voice because the word of God had not yet come to him. But after a few years of following God and God not letting a word of Samuel's fall to the ground as a prophet, Samuel probably knew the voice of God real well because he probably didn't always speak to him audibly. We have to learn the word of God. We have to know the word of God we have to learn how to hear it in community. We have to learn to perceive God's voice. That principle of whatever you're gonna feed will grow, whatever you starve will die. We have to feed hearing from God. So point number two, practicing obedience. I intentionally put practicing in that because it's okay if you mess up. That doesn't eliminate all the progress that we've made. We are growing into the image of Christ. We are growing ever brighter every day. That does not mean that we will not take steps back or have mistakes. We have to practice obedience. In sports, because we'll use it for a positive example right now. You all know if you played, or honestly musicians, same thing. Anything that takes hand-eye coordination or dexterity, the better you get, the more muscle memory you have, right? Like if you do it well, I've never played baseball, but I've heard once you finally learn the swing, you can do it in your sleep. You've ridden a bike, you can do it even if you haven't done it in 10 years. There's muscle memory you start to learn because you start to do, okay, when this happens, I do this thing. Right? like if you're, playing, if you're playing basketball, you're running, and then you know a pass is coming, you get your feet set to catch it to be able to shoot. You have to learn how to do that rhythm. I play basketball too. I just don't talk about it as much as Miles. He is really good. I will give him that. He's very good. He still doesn't score against me, but that's okay. Um, I can't. I mean, he's going to get back and be like, we're going and playing now. But there's a muscle memory that comes from practicing and doing those things over and over and over again. And so here's why I wanna challenge you. If, you. if you think something is God speaking to you, there's a principle that's you'll know it by its fruit. If it's being rude to somebody or harsh, it's probably not God. But if you're like, no, if I say that encouraging thing, it'll probably encourage somebody. What if you just did it like it was the voice of God and see him start to use it? What if you just start to respond to the things you're like, oh, I think God was telling me to go talk to that person. Oh, I think I should take a break from the work that is really urgent and important right now to spend five minutes praying. Like if you start to respond as a reflex to those things and obey what you think God is speaking to you, you will see things start to open up. You will see patterns in your life. Eli's eyes had grown weak because he was losing the practice of using his spiritual sight. That's what that symbolism is showing us in that passage. You use it or you lose it. Like you either use this practice, you use this understanding of I can see beyond the physical of what's happening here. That's one of the things like we come into these Sundays sometimes forgetting that something so powerful and mystical and unbelievable is happening in this moment. Not because we prepared the right songs or I've read the right commentaries or whoever's speaking has the great the best story or anything like that. Something powerful and spiritual and deeper than we can see is happening here because the spirit of God is here speaking to me, through me, to you, He's impacting all of us because we are the gathered church. And so the more that we practice obedience as a reflex, we start to respond to the things that God is saying. We will see him start to use that. We will see fruit of God doing things in our lives that we didn't expect, of things coming together in ways that we could have never put together because we don't obey based on what we think is gonna happen. We obey because that's what we're called to do as children of God. Jesus showed us this pattern. The father's shown me the plan and my response is to obey. I've told you everything the Father's told me. Your response is to obey. Because then we start to see the, the pieces come together. It's like, it's like you know, one of those tapestries or like woven things. If I turn it around on the backside, it's going to look like a jang- jungled t- tangle of cords. I couldn't say that. Jumbled tangle of cords. There we go. You know what I'm talking about? Those blankets, like if I held one up and the, you could not tell what the pattern was. I turn it around, it's a beautiful picture on the side. That's our perspective and God's perspective. You do not know what is at stake with your obedience. And I don't know where, what is standing in the way of your obedience? But that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. We have to be dedicated where the Lord's placed us, not just looking for the next things. Because sometimes our obedience is powerful when we've done it a hundred times and there's breakthrough on the hundred and first time. So we see later in Samuel's life that his sons actually do some of the same things that Eli's sons did. And that's what leads him to anointing the next king. But he was willing to confront that. And so that's where we learn perseverance in the life of a Christian is the mark. We have to learn to obey again and again and again. And we don't just do this in a vacuum. We don't just do this because Tyler's telling you to do this because we look to the one who has saved us as the example of doing this. You can go ahead and close your Bibles and stand up with me. We look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We consider him who endured such opposition so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. He's gone through everything that we have gone through. It says in scripture, we don't have a great high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, with our struggles, with our pains, with that situation that you were thinking, yeah, but if I obey God, then this is gonna happen. Whatever that is for you, he can sympathize with those things because he went through everything that we did, yet he did not sin. He showed us perfect obedience, even obedience to death on a cross. And so that's why we keep doing communion. We keep doing it again and again. I made y'all stand up even though we're gonna go into communion because sometimes physically standing makes you lock in a little bit more. But we do communion and we've been doing it so much recently because we are called to remember his sacrifice. This bread, this cracker is his body. This blood, this wine, this grape juice is the covenant of grace in his blood. We remember him because we don't just do this because these are rituals that we do because we've been doing it as a church for 2000 years. We do it because the one who saved us from sin and death and hell did it before us and we strive to look like him. And so in this time, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna all sit down once I'm done praying and go into communion. If you don't have one, you can raise your hand and somebody on our team will bring it to you. Pray over your families, pray over your wives. But let's look to him who laid everything down for us as a model, as a symbol, as a picture of what we're supposed to do with our lives. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word does not return void, that if anything in that I'm struggling and thinking I forgot or should have said this differently, that I can trust you, that your spirit is the one that is actually speaking, that your word goes out and it roots deep. Would it fall on fertile soil and be watered? Lord, and I pray in this moment, would you give each of us, myself included, a tangible and visceral reminder of who you are and what you have done for us. That Lord, you gave up the highest place. You gave up all comfort, perfect comfort with the Father, perfect community. And you came down and became one of us went through our pain and struggle so that we might be in that community with you? And would you strengthen us as we go from here today to obey responsively and immediately? Would we hear your voice and know you? Jesus, could we have a picture and a moment with you now? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Y'all can sit down. Again, raise your hand if you don't have communion.